Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, as we're looking again at the crowning verses of an entire defense by the Apostle Paul of God's work among his fellow countrymen, the Jews. It's an unusual passage, admittedly, for the Apostle Paul, because most of the time when he's addressing the issue of Jews and Gentiles, his purpose is actually to defend Gentiles and their right to be entering into the people of God, not on the basis of Jewish law and tradition, but on the basis of faith and grace. And so while he's often arguing these issues, he's arguing with Jewish opponents who are resisting those kinds of truths. But in Romans chapter 11, the situation is different because he's addressing this to Gentiles in this situation who have become, as he says, perhaps proud, who assume that they maybe had replaced Jews in God's overall program of salvation, his overall purpose for his people. And so Paul's writing this really as an overall defense of the place of the Jews in God's process and God's purposes. Paul is forced into this because as he been as he has been defending this Jewish Gentile, excuse me, defending the Gentile inclusion throughout the entire book, he knows it would have raised questions in the minds of many. Jews had a category for Jewish unbelief. They had a category for large-scale rejection of God. They understood exile and they understood punishment and they understood all those things. But what they really didn't have a category for was for a large-scale Gentile influx while Jews continue on in their unbelief. It raised questions in their mind about the whole framework of the Old Testament and the covenants of promise that were given to them. So Paul is writing this, trying to assure them that everything they're seeing is not a change in God's plan. In fact, it is exactly as God always intended it. He's he's telling us that this uh, unbelief, this rejection, this hardness by Israel, and even this influx of Gentiles is not, is not something that is an indicator that God has bypassed or changed the, the intended meaning of His promises, that He's somehow uh, become uh, disgruntled and fed up with the Jews, that He set them aside in any way, or some of the terminology that Paul uses throughout this book, that Israel has failed or that they have stumbled so as to fall, or, or any of those things. Because, as he says over and over again, God has, has elected Israel for a future. He's elected them for a future. That's not evident, at least in a corporate view in Paul's day. There were a few Jews who were believing They were part of the church, and Paul refers to them as the remnant. There was this remnant of believing Jews. But that remnant didn't appear to do justice to the whole corpus of Old Testament expectation about Israel's future. So Paul is arguing that while there's a this current remnant, the full picture of God's work for the Jewish nation is still working out. It has a greater purpose. And it goes beyond the current situation. It involves even those who are rejecting 
Even those who are resisting, they're doing so within God's plan. They're hardened or spiritually insensitive, but the hardening didn't mean that God wasn't at work among Israel. In fact, he tells us God is using their hardness to bring Gentiles to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when the Jews rejected the gospel, God sent this gospel to the Gentiles at that time. But even that's not the end. Because the work among the Gentiles is designed to provoke Israel in the ultimate end to jealousy, to repentance, to restoration. Now all of that, that sort of cause-effect relationship, is what Paul is talking about whenever he refers to a mystery. That's what he says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, to be ignorant of this mystery Brothers, mystery, you remember we said last week, was something that was previously unrevealed in the Old Testament, but now has been revealed to the apostles and the prophets. And in this case, Paul is specifically referring to this mystery about Israel's hardening. He doesn't want us to be unaware concerning it because he says if we misunderstand this, we are in danger there of being wise in our own sight, wise in our own eyes, of having an inflated view of ourselves and our place in God's uh, program for salvation. So in Paul's mind, it's imperative that we have a correct understanding of all this. This mystery related to Israel, related to their current state of unbelief, and related even to their future as a people of God. And to that end, we, as we started to see last week, Paul takes the remainder of this chapter from verse 25 all the way down to verse 36, and he begins to unfold for us insights concerning Israel's coming restoration. Insights into this mystery of her present hardness and her coming restoration. We took a look at the first one last week. The first insight that he gives us is that Israel's renewal is presently cloaked in temporary hardness. It's cloaked in temporary hardness. That is to say, It isn't obvious or it doesn't seem like God is doing anything with Israel. If you were to look at them in Paul's day, if you were to look at them in our own day, you might see a few believing Jews, but you don't see large-scale movement. They are largely hardened, or as Paul says, partially hardened. They're resistant to the gospel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul. Paul mentions this hardening and he qualifies it here, as we said last week. First of all, it's partial. That is to say, it's not complete. He's looking at the Jews as a whole and he's saying not all of them are believing. Not all of them are unbelieving. Not every single Jew rejected the gospel. God God was at work among some of them. But as it is, it's only part of them. And that part is in contrast to what he eventually says in verse 26. All Israel will be saved. Right now, only part. But in the coming time, all. There will be a whole-scale renewal within Israel. Secondly, this hardness, as we said, is purposeful. He says that it's happening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
This is the same thing he said back in verse 11, that through their trespass, or we could insert hardness there, through their unbelief, through their hardness, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? So as to make Israel jealous. This is what we said last week. This is really the core of the mystery. The part that was really unheard of before the New Testament time, that there was always discussion about a remnant. You can find that discussion all over the Old Testament. There's always discussion about Gentiles believing in the end. You can find that discussion. But what wasn't there was that God would use the hardness of Israel as a catalyst to turn the gospel to the Gentiles so that He could use the response of the Gentiles to bring in the Jews. This was never spoken before. This was the mystery. We might say the sequence of all this is the mystery. Israel rejects God throughout the Old Testament. Even with with the coming of the Messiah, they still reject God. He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. God then turns to the Gentiles, begins to work among them. He sends As Jesus says in one parable, his workers out into the highways and byways, pleading with people to come in. And then eventually this Gentile salvation is used by God to stir Israel to jealousy and to bring them ultimately to repentance. That's the purpose behind all this. The remnant has always been there. When the Messiah came, it didn't change much. The remnant had always expressed faith in God. Now they were expressing faith through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In terms of the overall hardening of Israel, nothing had changed. Israel had always resisted God, always been hardened against Him. The coming of the Messiah changed none of that. Seeing His love and His truth didn't provoke them to belief any more than they had been provoked to belief before. Seeing His sacrifice on the cross had not provoked them to belief any more than they had throughout the history of their existence. Nothing had changed. They hadn't been provoked to jealousy. They hadn't been provoked to restoration. They hadn't been provoked to repentance at all. Now, in the day of Paul, in the day of our our own existence, even in the modern times, tens of thousands of Gentiles were turning to God. Israel still has not been provoked. They still are hardened. There still is only a remnant. But it will change eventually, which sort of the third part that Paul says about this hardness, that it's temporary that it is in place until a partial hardness has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. It has a time limit. It reaches an end. And at the end, there will be a sudden change. And as Paul says in verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is the way God will bring about. This is the manner. This is the sequence. Doug Moo writes about this. He says, quote, Some Old Testament and Jewish texts predicted that Gentiles will join the worship of the Lord in the last day. 
And some of them suggest that it's the Lord's glory revealed in a rejuvenated and gathered Israel that will stimulate Gentile interest. But wholly novel was the idea that the inauguration of the eschatological age would involve setting aside the majority of Jews while Gentiles stream in to enjoy the blessings of salvation. And that only when that stream had been exhausted would Israel as a whole experience these blessings. End quote. And Paul says then that all Israel would be saved in this way. He's referring to this sequence. He's referring to this movement. And he's referring to Israel as a whole. He's not suggesting, by the way, no one's ever suggested that there will be every single Jew without exception. He's not suggesting that there will not be a single Jew who rejects, but Israel as a whole rather than Israel only in part as they are right now. Kind of like when we say, you know, the whole school was excited about the game coming up. There might have been one or two who had no clue, but there was a, there was an overall comprehensive sense of excitement about something coming, right? Or even in the Old Testament, often you hear this kind of language. First Kings 12, 1, the writer says, all Israel came to Shechem to make Rehoboam king. Not that every single Israel, Israelite abandoned their post and their home, but, but there was a sort of a collective united sense around the country as they came together to make Rehoboam their king. Or Daniel 9-11, when he prays, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. He wasn't suggesting that there were no true believing Jews. He wasn't suggesting that every single Jew was resistant to God, that none of them were regenerate. But he's speaking about Israel collectively as a whole. And in the same way, Paul looking for a day when Israel will not be primarily unbelieving, but they'll be primarily believing. At the present time, all of this is cloaked in this mysterious hardness. But it won't always be that way. And that's Paul's first insight into this eventual renewal. Secondly, he wants us to understand that this renewal is also confirmed by Scripture. That's what he says there in verse 26. It's in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Just like Paul's done throughout Romans 9 through 11, he continually goes back to ground what he's saying in the Scripture. And when he quotes here from the Old Testament, like he normally does, he brings different passages together. The first one comes from Isaiah 59, one of those places where Paul quotes. And in fact, he quotes from the Septuagint here, which is a little different That is the Greek version rather than the Hebrew version. They're a little different from one another. But when you look at the whole context of the chapter, the theology, even though their wording is different, the theology is just the same. Isaiah 59 is a passage that is about salvation. In fact, apart from a couple of Psalms, it mentions salvation or being saved as much as, if not more than any other place in the Old Testament. And it begins with the plight of Israel over not being saved. Their discouragement that things weren't happening. The recognition 
that they were suffering. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. That was maybe the accusation of some whenever they looked at Israel's situation. They thought because of their suffering, because of their distress, that maybe God just simply wasn't able to do what He had always promised He would be able to do. That wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't God's ability. The problem wasn't Israel's identity. It's not that they confused His promise. It wasn't that they misunderstood what He said. The problem wasn't with God and it wasn't with His promises. The problem stated in verse 2 is, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. That's the situation. The situation is that Israel was sinful. They were resistant. They were hardened. passage goes on to squarely define the source of their woes. God rehearses their sin, their separation from Him. They were suffering what they were suffering because like every person born in this world, they're born separated from God. They're born under condemnation. They're born with guilt over their sin. They're born into their plight. The the reason why they were not experiencing the salvation of God is not because of some deficiency in God. It was because of themselves. Later in the chapter, Isaiah writes, Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied for you. And our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. And then Isaiah begins to talk about the Lord's response to their eventual confession and their deliverance. He says in verse 16, God saw, he saw, there was no man and wondered, there was no one to intercede. Then his arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on, put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And he begins to picture God taking on the cause of Israel and vindicating her from her enemies. And he pictures God's zeal being kindled. And then he says down in verse 20, 19 and 20, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. You may recognize that as a passage from which Paul quotes. His quote, however, is more like the Septuagint version, the Greek version than in the old Hebrew, as I said. He says, or I should say the Greek version says this, the deliverer will come 
for the sake of Zion. He will turn ungodliness back from Jacob. A little bit different. A little bit different. But it's not uncommon, really, when the Septuagint is translating the Hebrew, that it does things like this. It, we might say, emphasizes often in its translation the cause while the Hebrew often puts its emphasis on the effect. In other words, one emphasizes that God comes to turn back sin within Israel, and one emphasizes that Israel turns back from sin. So, both of these things, probably working inseparably in Paul's mind, confirming what This whole passage says Israel is separated from God because of sin and when he comes and when he works there will be massive repentance. Massive restoration. And the whole oracle there in Isaiah 59 ends with the declaration this is my covenant with them. This is my covenant with them. This is my promise in other words. I'm promising to do this for them. Even though right now they're full of sin, even though right now they are full of rebellion and iniquity, I will come to Zion. I'll come for the sake of Zion. I will remove iniquity from them. And then Paul combines that, that mention of the covenant, he combines that with probably what seems like Jeremiah 31. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The covenant. When God promised to Israel, that He would restore them in the end. Put His Spirit within them. Once for all, be their God and they will be His people. So this is Scripture. Paul says this is what the Scripture declares will happen to Israel. This is exactly what God said He was going to do over and over again. And we should be in line with that expectation. Thirdly, Paul wants us to understand that not only is this confirmed in Scripture, but it's consistent with God's sovereign Election. It's consistent with his sovereign election. He says in verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. This, this is profound. Paul adds to it in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are Irrevocable. It's profound, but it's clear. The basis of Paul's confidence that Israel's future as a nation will be as everything described in the Old Testament, the basis for all of this eschatological restoration is the fact not only of the prophecies of the future, but it is the fact of God's original election of them. Paul says that's all you need. All you need to know is that God gave them a gift, He gave them a calling, and that will never be revoked. That's the character of God and of His promise. Their future is inevitable because of the nature of God's electing grace. We might say, as we often do, that it is irresistible. That when God sets His mind to do something, when he sets his grace to do something, it will not be resisted. When he declares 
when he makes a promise, when he prophesies, he will always bring it to pass. When he determines to pour out his grace on his people, they will not be able to resist it. And so, as Paul says, the calling of God is irrevocable. Or another way to say this is that God's electing grace is unconditional. It's unconditional. God doesn't elect men and women, or a whole nation for that matter, based on how they respond to Him. When He sets His loving purpose on a people, He's not doing that because He anticipated the way they'll respond to Him to begin with. He's not doing that because He looked into the future with His omniscience and and figured out that 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 all of these people are the ones who will respond to Him, and therefore, based on that condition, He was going to set His love on them. That is sometimes called prevenient grace, but it's not taught in the Scripture. God doesn't look down through the history of time and and see into the future and see all those conditions being met and then decide to elect. He elects without any set of conditions, and He always brings it to pass. That's the nature of God's grace. In fact, if He doesn't do that, as Paul says in another place, grace is no longer grace. It's reward. For grace to be grace, it has to be unconditional. It has to be based on nothing but the goodness and kindness of God. And so it makes sense. Paul says it. It's, it's, it should be obvious. God's calling cannot be revoked. It cannot be resisted. His gifts are never revoked. And that really is the big issue on display with Israel. This is the grand scheme that is being worked out, even through their present rejection. Although many people through the years have assumed that God declared His love for Israel apart from all the other peoples on the face of the earth, and that he had either changed his mind about that, or that somehow he was thwarted in his desire by Israel's resistance, or otherwise God didn't have the power to make good on his promise, or he wasn't clear about what he was saying. About any of those things. But that's not the way the New Testament would teach us election operates. We understand God's electing love in the plain and simple words with which He speaks it. And we understand it to be for His glory. And we understand it to be by His power. And we understand it to be irresistible. He chooses whom He'll save in spite of resistance. It's actually when we're enemies. It's actually when we're hating God. It's actually when we're spurning God that He chooses us. So if indeed God promised His grace to Israel, apart from all the peoples on the face of the earth, that promise cannot be revoked. That's what Paul's saying. That's the nature of God's election. It's hard to see how you could uphold that doctrine of election if the election of Israel failed. It's hard to see how you could make a viable defense of the doctrine of election if God's overarching election of His chosen people 
was not going to come to pass. Or if it was somehow conditional. It's hard to see how the doctrine of election would not itself be thwarted. This is why everyone who celebrates and glories in the doctrine of sovereign election ought to be the first to celebrate and glory in the election of corporate Israel. That'll be the first ones to see God's divine majesty working against the hardness and stubbornness of man's heart and bringing about his purpose to his glory. It's the basis over and over again throughout the Old Testament for his assurance. For example, Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So here you go all the way from the book of Genesis, all the way through all the kings, all the way through all the exiles, and all the way to the restoration back to the nation or the land of Palestine. You go all the way through that entire sweep of history and God wants them to know, you want to know the reason why you are still around today. You want to know why? Because I don't change. You want to know why Israel today in in 2017 still exists as a people with their own language, their own religion. You want to know why they, apart from all the ancient peoples of the world, are still around? You want to know why? Because God doesn't change. Because He's working out His purpose. John Stott writes this, he says, As for His call, God is not a man that He should lie, nor son of man that He should change His mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23, 19. Stott goes on, It is because of God's steadfast faithfulness that we can have confidence in Israel's restoration. End quote. So Paul says this is why he has so much confidence. Because God's calling is intact. Because God's character is intact. This is why, to back up just one verse in verse 28, this is why he describes Israel with this dual status. Why the same Israel can at one time be thought of as, regarding the gospel, enemies. And the very same Israel at the same time, regarding election be thought of as beloved. And the only way for that to make sense is to have some plan in place for future restoration. I mean, just notice what he says. He says, first of all, as regards the gospel, they are enemies. Why? Why does Paul say they are enemies? For your sake. You see, their hardness, their current resistance, this is something that is judicial by God. We all, of course, are enemies of the gospel at one point. Paul made that clear back in Romans chapter 5. We were enemies before God reconciled us to His Son. But he's not talking about that act of uh, enmity in our heart against God in this. He's talking about the purposeful hardening of Israel for your sake. Once again, pointing to this cause-effect dynamic between Jews and Gentiles. All of it going back to that chain of blessing that we saw, we mentioned back in verse 11. 
He says their trespass, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. They are enemies so that God would have a place in his program, a purpose in his program for the Gentiles to bring us in. Why? So to make Israel jealous. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Looking to the future there. Or down in verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul's pointing to this chain of blessing, this this sequential interaction that God has working out in his plan. And he's telling us that their current status as enemies, as in a place of rejection, as in a place of sin and trespass, is for your sake. That is why they're enemies. Speaking here, by the way, all in plurals. He's not talking about individuals. He's not saying you individually. He's saying you corporately as Gentiles. This is why Israel corporately is this way. Because you corporately are being beneficiaries of this. So Paul says, regarding the gospel, they're enemies. Not not necessarily actively, though that certainly was true in their unbelief. But passively, God is in animosity toward them. God has set his judicial hardening, just like he did with Pharaoh, against them. That becomes all the more obvious when you look at the second half of the verse, because just as Paul speaks passively about how they are enemies, he speaks passively about how they are beloved. They are loved by God. God has a a certain kind of love for Israel. And this is Israel's dual status in the present time. God has made them His enemy in order to place into effect His plan for the Gentiles, which then brings into effect His ultimate plan for Israel. And Paul's telling us that God has determined to love them. Why? Well, just like for the sake of the gospel, it was for us. He says they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's talking about ancestry here. He's talking about the physical descendants of Abraham, of Jacob, of David. God had given them unconditional promises. Promises that he told them wouldn't be fulfilled in their lifetime. They wouldn't see it come to fruition in their lifetime. But promises that are still standing. Promises which, by the way, we understand now that we participate in as Gentiles to the praise and honor of Christ. God has included us. But it doesn't mean that he set aside the original intent of these promises of bringing all Israel to salvation. 
And so Israel's bound for inevitable renewal. Why? Because this gift of this covenant and this calling by God will never be revoked. The calling of the forefathers. It's confirmed by Scripture. Even if it's cloaked by present hardness, it's consistent with the nature of God's election. And then fourthly, Paul wants us to understand the coming renewal of Israel is also coordinated with God's plan for all men. It's coordinated with His plan for all men. That's what he says in verse 30. For just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that mercy shown to you, excuse me, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul's taking us right back to what has been the core of this entire chapter, this this cause-effect sequence, so that we can understand the way God's sovereign plan is working out throughout the history of mankind. And he refers here to the disobedience of Israel. We have received mercy because of their disobedience. If they weren't resistant to God in God's overall plan, He wouldn't have a reason to stir up the Gentiles so that He could stir up the Jews. And so it's because of their disobedience that God is working among us, using us as a tool to stir them to jealousy. And this is exactly why Paul says we as Gentiles shouldn't be overly proud. We shouldn't be wise in our own eyes. We shouldn't assume that somehow we have replaced Israel in God's ultimate design. He's devised a plan that will exalt His mercy, will magnify His grace, will make plain the weakness of all humanity, and ultimately will bring all peoples that He chooses into the family of God. All this magnifies the beauty of His plan. While its ultimate driving force is God's overall plan to provoke Israel to jealousy, to bring her to obedience, He has devised it in such a way that it brings blessing to many, many people. You can see it. Paul just says it. Look, you were disobedient. The Gentiles in general, that is. Again, using plurals throughout this passage. You... As a people, as a corporate identity, you Gentiles, you were estranged from God, but now you have received mercy. Now, in the present manifestation, you are the primary people of God. Why? Because of their disobedience, Israel's disobedience, he says. In God's plan, their disobedience is met by God shifting His favor to the Gentiles. And then, in the sequence, they too now have been disobedient. Not that Israel was ever really faithful at one time. He's describing their current situation. They too now are disobedient. That's their current status. A largely unbelieving people. But from the standpoint of the sequence, that won't always be the case. Because Paul turns... And he says, by the mercy shown to you, again, collective you, they shall receive, or they will receive, or they may receive mercy. 
By the way, I know some of your Bibles have the word they now, they may now receive mercy. And some people have read that and caused a lot of confusion. How can Israel now be disobedient and now also receive mercy? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And and yet it's not a a, a reading that's found in some of the earliest manuscripts. So most likely just a scribal error, copying the word now from the previous part of the verse. Even if it's there, though, it's just simply saying that in the sequence of God's design, because God is turning now to the Gentiles, that Israel is prepared. The time is now at hand. That it could happen at any moment. They could be stirred to salvation. They're currently disobedient. But now all the sequence has been fulfilled except for the final part. Why has God done all this? The end result, Paul says in verse 32, He did it in order to consign all to disobedience. It's a word for catching fish in a net. Sort of wrap everybody up into the same place. Doesn't matter if you're born Jewish or you're born Gentile. Doesn't matter where you come from, from a religious standpoint. It doesn't matter what your background is. Everyone is in the same predicament. And we begin to see the beauty of God's plan because if He had just begun all the way back when he made his original promises to Abraham and every Jew responded to God rightly from that point on, they might conclude wrongly that they didn't need mercy. They might have concluded wrongly that they were not as bad off as others. They might have concluded that they just simply weren't as sinful as the rest of humanity. But God is working out His plan in such a way that when He brings it all to fruition, it will be abundantly obvious that whether Jewish or Gentile, all people are consigned, all people are confined, all people are locked up under the same problem, which is their sin, and every one of them are equally dependent on what? On the mercy of God. As He says there at the end. He did all of this so that he could have mercy on all. Not all universally, this isn't universalism, but all that he has determined to bring mercy on. And all this, of course, brings us to Paul's final, we might say, insight into this eventual renewal. And that is, in verses 33-36, it is all calculated to generate praise. God's, God's done it this way. As we said last week, people who, who want to bypass eschatology, and you hear it all the time, they just, they just sort of label eschatology as a problematic part of, of, of theology, and they want to just, uh, uh, stay away from it. They think it's too confusing to really study or teach, or they think it's sometimes too divisive, or whatever it might be. And so you have people all the time sort of denigrating eschatology. But for the Apostle Paul, eschatology leads to doxology. Eschatology resounds in praise. In fact, if you were to ask a typical first century Jewish Christian about his theology, he probably would have begun with eschatology. We write our our systematic theology books and we always put that as the last chapter. They would have put it as the first chapter. They would have begun by asking the question, now how does all this, where's all this going? Well, it's all going towards the eventual restoration of Israel. Now, then how do we get there? Well, we get there by way of the cross. 
This is certainly where the Apostle Paul was. He he was taken up as he started to just ponder this magnificent plan of God. The way that he has put all this together in such a magnificent way as to carve out an inclusion for the Jews, an inclusion for the Gentiles, and in a universal way to show our weakness, our pride, our helplessness, and a universal way of showing the necessity of His love. His mercy. A whole process spanning the entire scope of history. And Paul writes in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. One of the most profound doxologies you'll read anywhere in Scripture. And Paul is just taken up into it. Because he cannot wrap his mind around this mercy of God. We all love the story of the prodigal son. We love it because we understand that it communicates the depth of God's grace and mercy in a way that few other stories do. A son who was given everything that he needs, all the resources that were necessary to have a blessed and happy life in fellowship with his father, and what does he do? He spurns it. He asked for his inheritance, much like Israel wanted the inheritance of their promised land, and yet he wanted nothing to do with the Father. He takes it, he squanders it, he loses it, he goes into exile, into a a place of, of, uh, uh, of reprobation and sinfulness. He finally reaches rock bottom, and he crawls back to his Father and he declares to him, I am not worthy to be called your son. Take me as your servant. And we all know that he finally got to the place where he needed to be. He finally understood exactly what he should have understood from the beginning. He didn't deserve the inheritance to begin with. He didn't deserve the goodness and love of his father to begin with. This is the process God is taking Israel through. And along the way, in making their rejection and hardness of heart absolutely uh, inescapable, along the way, He's devised a plan that extends mercy to the Gentiles and uses them to accomplish His mercy for Israel. His riches in this plan, His wisdom and His knowledge in this plan are deep. We'll spend all eternity exploring them. We contemplate His electing grace. And it's not something we can look at at just one time. It has, as we might say, durability. You know something that's really beautiful has that quality about it? 
It's one of the things that makes great art. You may not really always know the, the, the intricacies of the stroke of an artist's uh, uh, brush, but you can recognize great art by its durability. That is to say, it demands multiple contemplations. It's not something that you see in a Sunday school periodical and, and, and some you know, little coloring book that you just sort of uh, draw over and throw away. Truly great, beautiful pieces of art draw people back to look at them again and again and again. And what Paul's saying is God is putting together something so magnificently beautiful that it is beyond our comprehension on one or two or three or an eternity of passes. We will stand and we'll gaze into the beauties of His electing grace for His people and we'll never plumb the depths of it. People who imagine that, that, you know, they have sort of mastered the Bible and they want church to sort of get their focus off of the scriptures and go on to something else. They don't understand the scripture. They don't understand the mind of God. They don't understand the wisdom of God. You can't plumb its depths. Every time you come back to it, you see another wrinkle. You see another aspect that you didn't see before and you're brought on your face at the, at the majesty of God's plan, the riches of His inexhaustible grace. As God declares through Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. No man has been gazing into the skies, looking at the stars for as long as he's been alive. Continues to invent new devices, telescopes, satellites, deep space probes, trying to measure out the heavens. He hasn't even begun to scratch the surface. It drives him. More and more discoveries, more and more inventions, pressing for better ocular dynamics with telescopes, for deeper penetration, for even human exploration, for all of those things. They are striving so that they can explore the heavens above. And God says, my thoughts are higher than even that. Meaning you would more quickly explore all the corners of the universe then you would explore the full depth of God's thoughts. I love the lyric by Frederick Lehman. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I think one of the things that will occupy us for all eternity is writing. Writing songs and lyrics, celebrating the majesty of God's grace, and even then we won't exhaust it. Paul says, look, who's who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who who came up with such things? Who could have imagined such things? Who would have ever recommended this pathway to God? If it was up to us, we would have constructed something that was conditioned on human action. 
We might imagine God being good, but He would have said, I'll be good to you if you're good to me. Israel, I'll elect you, but if you fail, I'm going to set you aside. I'll promise things to you. I'll promise things to your forefathers, but I won't really mean them. I'll pull the rug out from under you. I'll shift my intentions. I'll fool you with enigmatic statements. I'll never be pinned down to my promises. That's the way man would counsel God. But God's not like that. He gives graciously for the sake of His own majesty and wisdom. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, for all eternity there'll be one conclusion, whether Jew or Gentile, whether religious or unreligious, when you're born into this world, you're going to have one conclusion. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Your faith, your repentance, your salvation, your whole existence. It was from Him. It was through Him. And it's to Him. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for this reminder of Your electing love. It is a magnificent plan. We see more clearly than we've ever seen how little we deserve to be a part of it. Not only because of our sin, our rebellion against You, but even we, who are we, O Lord, born outside of Your covenant people, born outside of the lineage of the forefathers, who are we? Lord, guard us then from being proud, from being wise in our own eyes. Guard us from ever thinking that we stand where we stand. Because unlike other people who have rejected You, we had the wisdom. We had some merit, some goodness to respond. Lord, we know that is not true. We stand here more cognizant than ever of the depth of the riches of Your grace. And with the Apostle Paul, we sing. We sing of Your goodness. We sing of Your mercy. We sing of Your love. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.